Hello, I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Welcome to 2024 and to the ninth season of the Folklore Podcast. When this show began as an experiment back in 2015, I really had no idea that it would go on to become the globally listened to and hopefully respected podcast that it is now. Whether you've been here since episode one or you're just joining us, I thank you humbly for your interest in the show and your engagement with the work that we're trying to do, bringing folklore to everyone and giving you free access to the world's experts in the subject, however they work with it. If you're working with folklore, we want to support you and what you do. Email us, thefolklorepodcast at gmail.com and let's talk about how we can bring you to a global audience. We're kicking off Season 9 by looking again at the field of writing folklore for children. We've covered this a few times in the past with various authors, and we're going to keep highlighting it, because it's an important field. If we don't engage young minds with the subject in the right way, how are we going to continue to highlight the importance of folklore in later life? In the past few years, it's been very gratifying to see this area improving. Where we had very little folklore for children and young adults being presented in an interesting way, we now have an exponentially increasing amount, both in fiction and non-fiction genres. And the quality of both, along with innovative styles of presentation and investment in the area, is now excellent. Today's guest has contributed greatly to all of these things with her series Reimagining the God Loki as a Mortal Child. Louis Stoll's continuing Loki series is aimed at middle-grade children and offers up Norse mythology in a fun way, through text, doodles and other illustrations. But it's also available in audio too. In a moment, our interview with Louis Stowell... But first, here's a flavour of Louis Loki, from the beginning of book one. Day one. Wednesday. Loki virtue score, or LVS, minus 3,000. My name is Loki, and I am a god. Or I was until last Tuesday. Now Odin has banished me to Earth in the form of an 11-year-old boy. This situation is bad for many different reasons. First, there is the overall weakness of this mortal body. I'm not the strongest of the gods, but right now my legs look like sticks and I have the upper body strength of a small squirrel. Turds. Before, as a god, I had awesome big hair, horns, cool facial hair, broad shoulders and arm muscles. After, as a child, I have only slightly awesome hair, scrawny neck, noodle arms, stick legs, and I'm short. Gods spring into being fully formed, so I have not, until now, ever been a child. Apparently, this is what Odin thinks I would look like as one. Rude. Second, there are my fake parents. The guard god Heimdall, who hates me, and a terrifying giant called Hirokin, feelings unknown, are here to pretend to be my father and mother while we are on Earth. 
I have to live with them and do what they say. I am appalled at this indignity. I'm thousands of years old. I should not have a bedtime. I should not have to do chores. I should absolutely, under no circumstances, be expected to fold my own undergarments. Third, I must put up with eleven-year-old Thor, who seems to take great amusement from sitting on my head and farting. I am Thor, god of bum thunder. Perhaps I should take comfort in the fact that he is here and must suffer with me, but it's hard to be comforted at the same time you're being farted on. While I am on earth, I must write in this stupid book every single day for a month to prove that I am becoming a better person and worthy of Asgard, whatever that means. Now you're probably thinking, Loki, you are the god of lies, the greatest trickster of them all. Why don't you just lie in the book and say you've been very, very good all month? Sadly, Odin, in his annoying wisdom, has thought of that. This is a magical diary. If I lie in here, the diary will correct it. For example, if I say, I am the most powerful of all the gods. Correction. No, you are not. Odin is. You are a puny worm whose only real powers are physical transformation and being really sneaky. I get this kind of rude response. So, I have a choice. Lie and be true to my glorious nature and be scolded by this random disembodied voice or tell the boring, unvarnished, and usually unflattering truth. Correction. I am not just any random voice. I am a simulation of Odin himself, with all his wisdom. If you're so wise, what number am I thinking of? You are not thinking of a number. You are thinking Odin smells. Ah, in which case I may as well be honest in these pages. There's a first time for everything. My tragedy began with a trick involving the goddess Sif, her long golden locks, a pair of scissors, and an ill-timed nap. I'll spare you the details, but let's just say that no one in Asgard can take a joke. Or a haircut. The next thing I knew, I was clapped in chains, stripped of my divine powers, and locked in a dungeon while Odin thought of a punishment. Fast forward to this morning when I was rudely shoved out of my prison, blinking in the Asgardian sunshine. Odin thrust this book into my hands and booted me out from Asgard over the Rainbow Bridge down to Midgard, or, as you peasants call it, Earth. As I fell, I transformed into my current puny shape. I landed down on Earth in a muddy puddle. Seconds later, Thor landed on top of me. Even as a human boy, he is not light. Plus, he was clutching his favourite hammer, which made him even heavier. I now have some very purple bruises. I picked myself up and looked around. I was in a sad, grey place full of mortals. No one was looking at me. That's when I realised that my shape had been changed. Ordinarily, I am so beautiful to behold that all must look at me. Correction. You are average looking for a god, and the reason everyone stares at you in Asgard is because they're making sure you're not up to anything. Have I mentioned I hate the truth? Yo, hi, this is Hilary Wilson for the Folklore Podcast, and today I'm going to be talking to Louis Stowell. Uh, welcome to the podcast. 
Hello, thank you. I'm very excited to be on. Um, yes, my name is Louis Stoll. I'm a writer and illustrator, primarily working for children, but other age groups too. And yeah, I'm excited to come and talk all things mythology and maybe Loki. Yes, uh, your current series is uh, Loki, A Bad's God Guide to, and then insert the rest of the title in there. <laughs> Um, the newest one is uh, Bad's God, A Bad God's Guide to Ruling the World. It's a little bit of a tongue twister. It is. Um, but it's a really interesting series. It's geared more towards a uh, middle grade audience. Yeah, like um, 8 to 13, something like that. Yeah, around there. Um, and it has been described as a bit of the good place meets the diary of a wimpy kid. Um, <laughs> which I thought was a great, you know, somebody who just watched The Good Place um, embarrassingly recently. I thought that was a really interesting interpretation of it. Um, would you like to explain a little bit about the premise of the books? Yeah, so I like the idea of the kind of liminal character, someone that's a little bit on the borders, um, someone that has the potential to become, you know, amazing or awful <laughs> and uh loki in these books the premise is that he has been sent down to earth as a punishment by odin and the punishment is for nominally for cutting off sif's hair um but actually it's more kind of a load of different crimes kind of like you know building up and that was the last straw um so i've essentially plucked him out of the sort of mythology timeline um after he cuts off Sif's hair and after a few other adventures, but before Ragnarok, before he sort of goes very past the point of no return. So he hasn't killed anyone yet, except an otter. But um, apparently I shouldn't mention that. The kids would get too upset. <laughs> uh, I mean, they're pretty attached to otters these days. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so yes, the idea is he has to be on Earth, writing in this magical diary that assesses his behaviour, learning how to become a good person. And I think um, I've always been very interested in stories where the kind of idea of goodness is inherently linked to humanity and to mortality. Because I, I feel like as a god, you don't really have consequences. You know, if you're going to live forever, um, apart from Ragnarok, um, then it's a, there's not much of a motive, motivation to be good. You know, whereas you've got this kind of finite time on Earth, um, everything feels more urgent. So I wanted that feeling of mortality and urgency for Loki. Um, also, because he's, you know, a very arrogant god, the idea of making him a child felt very fun because it's sort of he's being forced to do what he's told and go to school and do all the things that you have to do when you're 11 um, after, you know, a kind of millennia of just having feasts and causing trouble. And the uh, the diary itself does literally judge him. It's mm -hmm. um, a sentient diary that has all of the wisdom of Odin within it. So there's <laughs> quite a few fun arguments that start to erupt over the page. I'm thinking of it as, it's basically AI Odin. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but the idea of being also that Loki in this version hasn't been to Earth for a while, so he hasn't really been since around viking times um so odin is bringing him up to speed with various definitions of modern life um you know what a car is what private school is what you know computer games are what the internet is um so i had quite a lot of fun writing the definitions from the odin's definitions were so good <laughs> they're not objectively correct they're just what odin thinks about the world which honestly is probably how odin would be assessing things in the first place 
Yes. <laughs> uh, it's the definitions are hilarious. It was uh, part way through going through um, a bad God's guide to being good that I started taking pictures of some of the definitions to send them <laughs> to a friend um, oh. who's a huge fan of Loki and immediately went out and ordered the book because she needed more of that in her life. Um, but it's, you know, part of the delight in these books is that they are so funny. You know, there's something inherently ridiculous about, you know, a God so associated with arrogance and you know, kind of swagger as Loki being placed into a private school where all of a sudden he's, not exactly the person anybody wants to be around Hmm. you know thor is pretty effortlessly uh integrating into that society you know to um from loki's point of view but then loki here is friendless because it's kind of hard to make friends if you're constantly insulting people yes (laughs) and same in as they are clever friends there either (laughs) yeah um yeah, so so Thor has been sent down as a kind of minder. He's also got two uh, adult minders. So Thor's in the form of a child too, because the idea is when Loki goes to school, he needs someone to watch over him at school. And then at home, he's got his fake parents. So I've gone with um, Hirokin and Heimdall. Hirokin is a relatively minor character in Norse myths, but I really liked her, her appearance in the story of Balder's death, where she basically, um, all of uh, spoilers, Balder dies at the end of the world. <laughs> um, yeah. The uh, the other the gods are too weak to pull um, Balder's funeral boat, um, whereas she is a mighty giant, so she'll kind of pull it into the water. Um, and she also has a wolf with snakes for reins. So I I just love that image, and there's a great carving of her with with her wolf. Um, so I felt like she'd be a great mother figure. <laughs> um, but uh, Heimdall I chose because at, at Ragnarok, at the end of the world, uh, the prophecy is that Loki and Heimdall will kill each other. And I thought, father and son, that, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, and it's also a delightful bit of irony with Loki having to take care of her snakes, You know, considering his punishment would be an eternity of snake venom being dripped yeah. into his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Which whenever I do kind of school events and stuff, and I'm talking about that, I, I do point out that while Loki is supposed to be the bad one like Odin's not nice you know if that's the planned punishment it's it's a fairly kind of harsh world yeah and it's just an interesting you know thought because you do have these characters coming in that play a huge part in you know the story of Ragnarok you know with um you know to think about Loki having to kind of befriend uh Balder as he does to a degree in the most recent book yeah and then to think of what he later is responsible for mm. it creates this really interesting you know sort of feeling for anyone that did know the mythology of like oh where's this going <laughs> um but also just i you know like obviously as a as a child knowing nothing about the mythology you can still sort of understand those dynamics on a slightly less mythic level just on a personal level of you know adults with whom you have tension for various reasons especially adults who just happen to be perfect and you just can't quite live up to that yeah perfect and handsome and perfect yeah just to if you have somebody like balder where everything in existence kind of swears to protect you 
because you're just so perfect. Mm-hmm. You're, you're never going to live up to that. Yeah. <laughs> Balder is the ultimate Mary Sue. <laughs> it really is. Um, but uh, yeah, I also but- like the, the kind of emphasis on how beautiful he is in the myths. Um, there's even a myth about um, one of the... There's a load of backstory anyway. This giant wants to <laughs> comes to Asgard and is like, I'm going to marry... Balder. And uh and they and everyone's like, well, only if you can pick him from a lineup. And in that lineup, you only see their feet. So it's like there's a there's a dating show in the UK called Naked Attraction, <laughs> where you see people from the feet up. So it's a bit like that. Um, but turns out Balder doesn't have the prettiest feet. It's the god Njord, and so she accidentally picks him and is really annoyed. Um, so Balder is beautiful, except apparently his feet. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that might come into play later on in the book somehow. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think he might need to go for a pedicure or something um but yeah i think there's uh you're we saying about you know kind of obviously the, the books are funny but i feel like the mythology is funny like it is it's yeah. full of like slapstick and kind of bizarre coincidences and and people being you know kind of mean to each other in quite kind of laurel and hardy ways you know there's definitely a lot of that like loki turns into a fly and bites someone on the eyelid and there's these very specific little moments of comedy i was always a fan of uh, thor having to dress up as a woman you know for mm-hmm. the feast i've just and been writing that one as a story actually because um so i'm good. doing short stories and one of them is the the story of that wedding um and oh, it's Whereas Loki fully transforms into a woman. So it's Lo- you know, Thor is very much a man in a dress with a beard, but just covering his face with a veil. Whereas Loki's like, I'm going to be a beautiful bridesmaid and just transforms himself. Um, and there's, um, I mean, in the kind of uh, source material, there's a lot of questions around the kind of grammar of that, where there's a bit where they describe um, Thor and... Um, Thor and Loki, which kind of in in the old Norse is effectively saying we two went man and woman, um, because of the way that you know they, they don't actually say man and woman because of the grammar, um, and and there's a lot of there's discussion of whether that is because they're referring to Loki as a woman, um, or if it's Loki being kind of weird and ironic and saying he's the man and Thor's the woman, um, but but yes, there's definitely kind of that that subversive playfulness is there right from the beginning and i think that that's really well done um within the books in terms of like loki's gender identity um because within the original source as you were saying you know loki is a shapeshifter um so loki is mother to you know quite a few uh interesting monsters (laughs) well he's father to some monsters and mother to another so it's you know he's kind of he can go any direction he desires because he's got um he is the mother of Sleipnir, who is Odin's steed, so eight-legged horse. Um, and that was him, basically. This is the bit I can't put in the children's book, but um, he seduces another horse <laughs> as a horse, but as a, as a female horse. So, um, uh, I mean, I, I kind of, you know, the story's in there. It's just in a kind of slightly less, um, you know, descriptive version. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and that's an interesting idea, though, because, you know, Loki is fully identifying as you know, mother and then fully identifying as father and mm. just has kind of and seamlessly integrated those two sides. <laughs> yeah. There's, I, I remember seeing a meme, which was actually of the Marvel Loki um, saying, I don't identify as a man or a woman. I identify as a problem. <laughs> and I think that probably sums it up. <laughs> yeah. And it's, 
it creates a certain uh, level of hilarity within the books with uh, Loki talking about how good he is with horses at every opportunity. <laughs> uh, he stresses it's because he was a horse, not because of anything he might have done with horses. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so what is the experience of adapting these stories um, to a younger audience and uh, modernizing them? So I would say it's a lot easier than doing Greek stories um, because the Greek stories are just so incident of non-consensual sex after incident of non-consensual sex. Whereas, yes, there's some rude stuff in the Norse myths, but it's a little bit more like people actually say yes. <laughs> um, and yes, Zeus is a bit of a pet. No, sorry. <laughs> Freudian slip. Odin is a bit of a pest, but nowhere near as bad as Zeus, so... So there's sort of a bit less that you have to take out, I'd say. Mm -hmm. And there's also, because there's a lot of sort of shape-shifting for comedy rather than for, you know, later in the swan stuff, um, yeah. it, it's easier just to transfer that into a kind of child-friendly space. Um, I I wanted to keep in the drinking, but I keep getting told to take out the drinking. <laughs> I had a joke about Loki being a mean drunk because there's this whole poem, Locusena, where he insults everyone while he's drunk. But um, but yeah, I kind of have to tone down the drinking. I guess that's one. That's that's the main thing. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, I think it's um, it's interesting you say modernizing because in some ways I feel like I haven't had to modernize anything, <laughs> and I think because part of what I'm trying to do is get at the kind of mythic structures behind the various versions of the texts that we have. So um, we don't have anything written down by for want of a better word, the Vikings. You know, we don't have, mm -hmm. as in the, the Norse pagans, they didn't write this stuff down. So it was all written down later by the Christians. So we never have that kind of, there's no Iliad for Norse myths. There's no kind of, you know, someone who might have actually believed in the gods, writing about the gods, except in, you know, some fragments and, you know, carvings and stuff. Um, so I always feel like I'm kind of looking through a, through a glass of Christianity, trying to get to the other side. Um, so I've done quite a lot of stripping out of kind of, I guess, Viking culture in the process of trying to get to what's behind. And that idea of, you know, these gods aren't Vikings themselves. They're worshipped by them, but they're something separate. And I, I quite like that idea of kind of gods having their own culture, which is definitely has an influence on Viking culture and vice versa, but is not identical to. Um, so in the in the text, there's not very much about the goddesses, really. You know, there's... Yeah. Sif is famous for having a haircut and also being married to Thor. Freya gets a bit more to do, but it's mostly people asking to marry her, you know. Um, <laughs> so I've, I've gone with the idea, in, which I kind of explore in book two, of, of actually the goddesses had all kinds of adventures. It's just no one written down. So every now and then I'll just make one up and be like, that was that happened, but no one, no one, you know, no one actually bothered to write it down. And that is kind of laid at the feet of kind of mortal sexism. Um, not that gods don't have their own sort of, you know, gender balance problems but it, it's worse for us you know it's worse when you're actually living it yourself yeah <laughs> yeah it's um you know it's neat though how you like there's this one moment in the book where they're going to a museum and looking at the artifacts you know from the ages of the vikings yeah <laughs> and uh i thought that was a really interesting look at you know how distant we are you know mm. now from that time but how immediate a lot of the stories still remain. Mm. Um, because like you said, there is a lot of slapstick. You know, there is a lot that it's very easy to relate to. And, you know, this Loki's adventures within these books, 
feel like they could be, you know, something that would actually be happening to him because his responses are pretty universal. Mm, yeah. He's a brat. He's a problem. Yeah, he's a brat. <laughs> universal to brats. <laughs> yes. All of brat It's not necessarily a bad thing. No. And I think I really enjoy writing a character who is not the good guy. He's not the bad guy exactly either, but he's definitely not, you know, kind of an aspirational hero. He's kind of a there but for the grace of God go I hero. You know, like I, I feel like when kids often ask me, was I like Loki at school? And I was like, I wasn't as bad as Loki, but Loki does all the things that I kind of would have done if I had just like taken the brakes off, if you know what I mean, if I'd just kind of yeah. given into all the worst impulses. Um well he also, you know, he's he's definitely capable of change and does, you know, does sort of modify his behavior and his worldview over time. But um that kind of chaotic, damaging force is really fun to play with. I thought that it was really interesting to dig into his insecurity. Um, mm. I think it was in the second book uh, where he's now made a friend, but this friend is now making another friend. Mm-hmm. Like, is it possible to be friends with somebody who has other friends? Yeah. And that's just such a terrible experience as a child Mm. crippling insecurity to go through (laughs) and i don't feel like it's something that i've really seen depicted in media before and when you have somebody like loki going through this you know how far might they go to keep that single friend yeah (laughs) quite far (laughs) in this case accusing them of crimes against the gods but um i'm sure he'd go even further um yeah just I thought that was just such a human emotion and an emotion mm. that I could easily see somebody like Loki taking to the extreme. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I I do think about kind of the the setup of Loki in Asgard, like before he comes down to Earth and how actually the other gods don't treat him very well. Like, yes, he does bad things, but so do a lot of the gods. A lot of the gods do quite terrible things. Um, but he's somehow been singled out as the one everyone picks on. Um and there's kind of a sense that he wasn't always that because um, he's Odin's blood brother, which is never fully explained. But I assume it's some kind of like, you know, exchange of blood. <laughs> but yeah. the idea being that kind of Odin, if, you know, if um, yeah, Odin must always show him hospitality, must always include him. But I feel like it's one of those decisions Odin made back in the day and now regrets. <laughs> um, so he's kind of, he's very much in Asgard on, you know, on sufferance and and i think he's deeply insecure about that and about his place in you know divine society um but one of the things that came up in the in my research that i had no idea about before was um you know loki is often you know he's seen as half god half giant um fairly consistently uh, but, but actually it's possible that thor is half god half giant because his mother um earth um it's it's not actually clear whether she was a goddess or a giant. Um, so those boundaries, those those borders between god and giant are very fluid and they all marry each other. And actually it's more about in-group and out-group. So Loki is kind of associated with the out-group, the giants, who aren't really giant anyway, they're just kind of other enemy, you know. Um, and whereas Thor is in-group, so even though if, if his mother is a giant, it doesn't really matter because he's kind of allied with you know, the Odin side of things. I thought that was extremely interesting. And that wasn't something that I had heard either. Mm. But it, you know, it is a really 
a stark difference between how Thor and Loki are treated by the others yeah. as a result of you know that sort of association. And the giants being just other rather than you know what is commonly associated with giants as being mm. these you know massive creatures is another interesting thing that I think yeah, sometimes I mean, gets lost. I um I was reading some scholarship on it where they were just describing them as the anti gods. Um, and so I guess, you know, or demons, if you're thinking in a kind of Christian mindset, but, um, so actually their size is kind of, you know, by the end or there, some of the giants are giant and there's a story where one of them is so big that you can kind of fit under his hand and stuff. Um, but I think that's sort of more around their sort of shape-shifting abilities. Um, cause giants like Loki can be anything they want. And Odin's always in disguise. He's, he's less kind of likely to completely change his body in a very obvious way, but he's often disguised as someone else. There's a certain magic that's associated with the giants that then, you know, is somewhat taboo to practice unless, mm. you know, these conditions are met and then it's perfectly fine to be practicing it. <laughs> yeah. So the, um, the magic that I've used, the kind of wand magic, um, I've taken from a type of Viking magic that I can't pronounce, but begins with an S. <laughs> I think something like Satha. Um and and that is a a magic that's traditionally associated with women, which, you know, in a kind of slightly macho context might be seen as a bad thing. And that the fact that Odin pr practices it is kind of not a problem necessarily, but definitely kind of you know makes his identity more complex. Um and so in in my books I've made it more that it's kind of giant magic. Because um, yeah. I just did, I didn't really want to repeat the kind of anything to do with women is bad to children, um, and but it is the idea of the magic of the other that you um, you shouldn't be messing with, you know. Do you think that the Norse myths are becoming more popular, you know, among children? Um, I think the Marvel effect is definitely quite big. So they've all seen Marvel. So I spend quite a lot of time explaining which bits are from Norse mythology and which bits are from Marvel, and you know, there's there is overlap but they're not the same thing. Um, and yeah, I mean, my, my kind of, um, my arrival at the Norse myths was not so much via pop culture, but via Wagner. <laughs> so I, um, I remember sort of the story of hearing the story of the ring cycle, because I was also obsessed with Tolkien. So those two things kind of overlapped. Oh, yes. Um, and also, um, there was, uh, various kind of Viking sagas I was interested in as well. Um, Terry Jones did a, you know, one of the Monty Python guys did a um, a Viking story um, called Eric the Viking. So I think that I just had all these different ideas floating around, but I, I don't think I really sat down and researched the Norse myths in detail until I was an adult. Um, and I was working in nonfiction publishing and doing it, working on a book of, of Norse myths retellings for children. Um, so I then went and read the the Poetic Edda, the Prose Edda, uh, various sagas, including the Volsung saga, um, and just sort of generally dug into it in a, in a bit more depth, and I think that was where that was where I realised that we didn't actually have a version, a contemporary version. We just had the much later Christian version, mm -hmm. uh, which I just find fascinating because it is almost like Norse myths is completely hidden from us in their true form. But also, there's no such thing as the true form of a myth because they always change anyway. So it sort of it foregrounds the fact that we don't have that kind of, for want of a better word, authentic version. Um, which I don't know, I, I actually quite like because I'm forced to remember that there's no such thing as the official version of a myth. 
Um, and I might be more tempted to do so if if there was something that had been written down by the people that believed in it, you know. Yeah. Like yeah, there's it's... no Bible. There's there's versions of the Bible and translations and, you know, has a good omens fan, the bugger all this Bible, you know. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, much arguments about which interpretation is then the ultimately correct one. Yeah. And every few years they find an older version, which then draws <laughs> more into question arguments and, about mm- translations. Absolutely. And children often want to know what's the real version, you know, what's the proper version. And and I think it is a bit of an unsatisfying answer to say there isn't one, <laughs> but there's, you know, there's this text and this text and that relates to this, you know, and um, then their eyes glaze over. So I don't really go into it that much. <laughs> um, uh, I think it was uh, A.S. Byatt who wrote a version of Ragnarok hmm. um, that was tying it to the... Uh, you know, bombings, um, you know, in England and the Blitz, hmm. um, you know, tying it into that. And there was a turn of phrase within it um, in regards to the wolves at the beginning of creation, describing them as the wolves of the mind. Right. Yeah. That, you know, they kind of eat the old versions of things and, you know, then create something new. Yeah. So That's really, yeah. yeah I, some... that. I read that one years ago. Um, I remember it was delightfully short. <laughs> Always appreciate that. Extremely short. Um, but um, but it makes me think of um, Odin's ravens. So he has these two ravens, thought and memory, um, and he's kind of in this kind of constant battle of worry that he's going to lose his thoughts and lose his memory. And, you know, you can interpret that as being an old man, but also a myth is something that you could lose, you know, and if you don't sort of preserve these sort of cultural memes then then they could disappear but also they could be overwritten by someone else's version and probably will be do you think that they're being overwritten to a certain degree now by the marvel interpretation of things i mean i do and i don't because i think there's an extent to which i definitely see kids being then curious to look out you know to discover where these things came from and also noticing that there's different versions around you know and there will be there's um uh in there's the Percy Jackson books and there's a spin-off version that's about Norse myths. So they've definitely, there are different kind of sources of these things. And um, there's uh, Francesca Simon who did Horrid Henry. So this is quite a, like a very different sort of story, but um, she's done a series of, of imagining if the Norse gods were, you know, in charge in modern times and they're kind of a cult of celebrity. Um, So I do think, I don't, I don't think that the Norse myths are getting stomped on by Marvel. I think it's just, there's just, you know, it's one way of, kids being vaguely familiar with the words Loki, Thor and Odin. Um, and and actually, mostly I think they're kind of interested to see that there can be different versions of these things. Because, I mean, if any kids yeah. read any Marvel comics, they understand Spider-Man get, you know, gets rebooted so often he sometimes feels like he's going to reboot halfway through the comic, you know. Yeah, talking about there not being a single, you know, canon version. Yeah. Uh, that definitely uh-huh. is true for Marvel too. Yeah, and the multiverses. And, and I think that's... That's kind of interesting, you know. I, I I think that kind of comic, if kid, well, it depends if kids come to it via the comics or the films in a way, because I think with the comics there is more of that acknowledgement of the multiplicity, um, and the films you kind of films and TV you do get kind of yes, there's a multiverse, but it's it still feels a bit more linear somehow, you know. That was uh, one of the things that was interesting to me about the films is that it starts off with the. Uh, as guardians not being gods but being aliens 
Yeah. And I think it was by the third or fourth movie, they had just thrown all of that out and now they're gods again. And nobody mentioned that. Like, there's no <laughs> real discussion about that. I didn't notice but... that at all. Um, I feel because, you know, like obviously the films come out, you know, once every few years and I don't really remember what the last one was about. You know, um, I, uh, there's, there's a lot of kind of media where you have to basically do your homework before watching anything. Um, yeah. We're just watching Wheel of Time season two, and we did actually watch like a twenty-minute fan recap because otherwise we'd have no idea who anyone was. <laughs> that was me back with uh, Game of Thrones now and then. Well, that's even worse. <laughs> yeah. They all got the same name as well. Um, oh, yeah, I've gosh, actually yes. my Loki books. I've started doing a series Bible because um, I wrote the things, and I don't necessarily remember if you know unless I write it all down. So you know how old people are or you know which myths I've referenced or which version of a myth I've gone with um because I think you know a series of books becomes like working with mythology in that you kind of only you're not allowed to change it you know because kids will notice oh gosh yeah there was (laughs) um one children's book author uh well multiple ones with this series uh the warrior cat series oh yeah yeah like eight books in and all of a sudden the authors realized wait we don't have a serious bible yeah. so they had to go to the fan wiki to start checking oh wow to make sure i mean i kind of love right. that actually um <laughs> but um yeah i uh yeah i've done i i i got mine put together after writing book three so i feel like i'm i'm doing better than warrior cats <laughs> definitely um, um i think there's still some errors within that one yeah yeah but, but yeah, it's it's an interesting thing because kids can be so dialed into something mm. they'll notice if something changes from book to book mm. and immediately want to call it out. But um, you know, do you think that there are really good resources for kids who are interested in learning more about the myths that inspired this series? There's I mean, some great books out there. Um, uh, Kevin Crossy Holland does quite a few Um there's Kevin Crossley Holland's Norse Myths, Tales of Odin, Thor, and Loki. Um, and he's got another one that's a follow-up. Um, and I mean, depending on the age of the child, I do think Neil Gaiman's ones should be fine. I, I can't remember anything yeah. too disturbing. <laughs> um, I think he was pretty careful with it. I yeah, yeah. I read it just a couple of years ago. And one of the things that was interesting in it, um, which you've mentioned as well, is that he takes care to point out um some of the goddesses about about who so little is known Mm. and you know, like about what the interpretation is based on what we know and trying to give them a larger role within the series. Yeah. Yeah. I I really appreciate doing that. You know, I really appreciated Mm. you giving Sif more to do within this series. (laughs) I felt like she got got shafted by the um, Marvel movies as well. Yeah. Cause I mean, interesting character. She even turns up in whatever it was, the Loki TV show, I think. Was it yeah. or was it one of the Marvel yeah. movies? They, they all blur. Anyway, where she, the the haircut thing and where you get stuck in a time loop. Yeah, yeah, that was in the TV series, and that was absolutely hilarious to me. Yes, <laughs> anytime they can actually reference something that you know, is there in the myths is pretty great. Yeah, especially when it's not screaming goats. Yeah. <laughs> so, what was your favorite thing about uh, writing this series? Um. Possibly drawing it, actually, because I really enjoyed, because I've never illustrated my books before. I've always, someone else has done it, always had no pictures. Um, So getting to create that kind of entire world that I'm also drawing and also telling partly in comics, partly in doodles, partly in text, um, 
I guess it's like a, like a collaboration with yourself, which is which is quite fun. Um, I think also just kind of I'm, I've plotted out the entire story arc, and um, which is both a kind of joy and frustration because I want to get to the story arc bits, you know, and I'm like, oh, I want to get to that bit, but I can't yet, so I've got to wait. Um, but I love having that kind of wider idea plotted out because then when I'm working on each, you know, each book, then I have much more of a sense of where the characters need to get to over time and what needs to be revealed. Though um, when you're writing a series like this, I mean, it's like writing a TV show, you don't know how much you're going to get. <laughs> so you have to work out arcs that will kind of fit to certain, you know, different contracts you may or may not get. So um, uh, that must be really difficult. It is. I think it's it's more like trying to think of it in modular terms. So it's like, well, this is the arc that needs to happen. Um, it could have, you know, an expansion pack or it could have a, you know, contracted version. Um, so I've got a contract for five books, which, you know, in theory, I could finish the arc in that, but I'd have to miss out an awful lot. So very much hoping yeah. to have more. Yeah, that's something that's always been really curious to me where, you know, like a television show runner will say, oh, I have enough for this many seasons. But if we get cut short, then it would be this many seasons. And they don't even know if they'll get that many seasons. Yeah, yeah. That's why I feel like it's your duty now to never end on a cliffhanger. <laughs> if yeah. if, it's, if you don't know that you've got more coming, you know. Or at least yeah. something has to work as an ending. It's like Buffy. They they made season five end as it could have been the grand finale. Um, but they also had more that could happen next, you know. Um, so if season know five, we get that comics spinoff or not. So, <laughs> or should you have that comic spinoff? I don't know. Sometimes I feel uh, like, yeah, worked for the X Files, and then the X Files got rebooted, and yeah, that was a mess. <laughs> One of the things that really amused me, um, as the weird kid growing up in school, uh, was Valerie's obsession with aliens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> trying so hard to uh prove that loki was an alien and yep. not what he actually was I-, I thought that was a brilliant little piece of <laughs> a brilliant little piece of writing and just a funny sort of um you know commentary in a way since there have mm. been so many um folklore writers talking about how like aliens are just the modern fairies or yeah, aliens yeah. are, you know, a modern version of other mythic creatures. I felt yeah. like that fit very well. Yeah, because it's all about how you interpret them and the lens you're looking at it from. And um, and I like, I don't know, like, obviously, you know, the secondary characters. I don't know if I'd even call Valerie secondary. She's a, she's a main character. Um, but the ones that are not the main character, you know, the, um, I, I think kind of I always go in with that idea that they're they're the protagonist of their story. And they've got a world of their own obsessions and preoccupations. And um, and if, you know, Loki comes into her life and suddenly all her dreams have come true because aliens are real, you know. Um, but then they're not. But then actually she's able to pivot with that because it's kind of cool anyway, you know. And, and I think mm-hmm. in a way for her, the fact that they are aliens or not aliens isn't as important as knowing that there's a world beyond and that there's something out there. The truth is out there even if the truth isn't what she thought, you know? Um, and uh, obviously she's the wrong age to have ever watched the X-Files, but, you know, I think she would have done if she if it had been on, you know? She would have been super into it and been all over those forums. 
I think she's probably very into Stranger Things, but I you know, don't want to mention oh, yeah. TV shows because it would it would very much kind of date things. <laughs> oh, it what you said about them having like being the main character of their own story, mm. I thought that was absolutely brilliantly done when Loki was going to the stables. And she was like, all this stuff was happening and you weren't even here. You, you don't know what's <laughs> going on. It, you know, it's it's funny. It, But the inclusion of her um, in such a main character role, you know, I think is something that would heighten the appeal um, where this would not be like a gender locked series. Hmm. Just be marketed to boys or just be marketed to girls. It has more yeah. universal appeal, I think. It's. I mean, I find the the gendering of books so interesting and difficult and annoying. Yeah. And because um, I, I mean, I, I worked in publishing for fifteen years before I became a writer. Um, and there was a period where they were going through kind of a fashion for having literally books for boys on the cover. You know, like stories for boys, stories for girls. Um, and I'd just be sitting there gnashing my teeth at the office, like, how? Why? Why? Um, but it is very interesting when, you know, like, irrespective of how the marketing works, I do think Mar- Loki's marketing marketed fairly universally. You know, I don't I don't think the publisher's saying it who it's for. That's kind of up for them to decide. Um, but I, I do get a lot more boys than I used to for my events. Like, for basically when I've done books, all my novels in the past had female main characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so interesting that kind of there is that kind of weird – gender loyalty but you know kind of um and and i don't know if it's just that people give this book to boys because they're like oh loki it's like marvel boys like marvel you know kind of like um but also find it so interesting that it is resonating with boys i meet who as far and i know uh you know kind of quite often they're like football lads you know i mean they're not kind of like uh you know eternal gender fluid deity type kids they're very much you know um, slightly more in the kind of I don't know, almost like traditional gender role place, but that Loki Maybe actually following speaks. Thor on the pitch, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but but interest, but I do. It's, it's interesting that they relate to Loki, you know. And I think uh, I feel like we do place too many limitations on kind of what kids can think of as theirs, you know, especially around gender. But I think there was a study recently where. They were looking at media with male protagonists and media with female protagonists mm-hmm. and the gender breakdown of the characters within them. And that people would perceive anything with female protagonists as being like overrun with female characters, even yeah, if it had yeah. the same 50-50 breakdown. Yeah, yeah. And, it's true. It's like yeah, in I, um in a meeting, if there's if something if there's 30% of the people in the meeting are women and 70% are men, it's perceived as like there's loads of women, you know? Yeah. Um, so somehow women are able to multiply themselves. It's impressive. Oh, and you got to use the ability when you can, right? Get more work done. <laughs> yeah. The cloning. Yeah. I think that that's kind of promising though, to you know see that there are so many sort of football lads there, um, you know, relating to Loki. Yeah, I think that's a pretty promising. Yeah, no, I find that though. really kind of cool. Um, and also, like, I've had, um, uh, I mean, when I've done female protagonists in the past, I've definitely had boys dress up as them, which is interesting as well. Um, that's great. And obviously, plenty of girls dressing up as Loki, but I feel like girls dressing up as boys is, that's just Shakespeare, you know what I mean? <laughs> Whereas, yeah. um, well, I suppose boys dressing up as girls is also Shakespeare, but you know what I mean? It's kind of like there's, 
when the masculine is prized, dressing up as the masculine isn't isn't a thing. You know, that's not remarkable. But whereas if a boy relates to a more feminine character, that's that's seen as sort of um, more controversial. So I'm more welcoming, you know, when they actually do. It's amazing, you know. I still remember the controversy over getting a female doctor for Doctor Who. God. I was so disappointed the writing was bad for that because I felt like they could then say, well, obviously a female doctor doesn't work. It's like, no, but it's not doctor's fault it's the writing yeah uh, still loved seeing all of the little girls going up to her though oh yeah it's brilliant and obviously uh you know her and yasmin forever oh, gosh yes um yeah but i i find it very promising though hearing about the audience for this book and hmm. you know, seeing that they're reading this material because there is a lot of you know really great things going on not just with loki being you know very gender fluid you know, character and, you know, often a bit more, um, less traditionally masculine, you know, than a character yeah. like Thor would be, you know, and having, you know, stronger female characters in there. I'm really curious to see where the series is going to go. It's yeah. been a blast getting to read it and it's been um, surprisingly suspenseful. <laughs> you know, I'm really rooting for Loki and I'm really worried about him because he's made some very poor choices. Such bad choices. Yeah. Um, well, like I said, I'm writing book four at the moment, um, and that's called A Bad God's Guide to Making Enemies. So uh, so it's all going to be really smooth and easy for him, I think. You know? <laughs> definitely. Oh, definitely. I'm, yeah, I'm very excited about it, and I, I love the artwork with it. I you know, love the blended media. I think that it's much easier to read you know, when mm. there are the doodles and there are you know, the little comics, and it's a really interesting way to present it because it seems less strenuous you know, mm. for a reluctant reader than just reading page after page of text. Yeah. And I think that's also deceptive because I think visual literacy is something that not everyone has, you know, and I think that idea of someone who can read pictures, not everyone can, you know, and I think it, the kids who are sort of, they're seen as less able because they can't read blocks of texts, but actually they can decode pictures and the kind of, you know, interplay of word and image really well. And I want those kids to feel like they're amazing readers, actually, because they're doing something that's quite complicated with their brains, you know. And I'll always come back to this story about um, when I was about 19, I gave my friend a comic and she'd never read one before. And she literally did not know how to read it. Like she didn't know where to look on the page. Um, and I feel like that is such a vital skill, especially because we're in this kind of society that's incredibly visual. Um, you know, we see more pictures in a day than an Elizabethan person would probably see in their lifetime, you know. Um, so actually kind of raising that up as a skill is something I really want to do. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I I grew up with comics. Um, most of the people I, I know have. So it's just foreign to think about it being, you know, a difficult medium to decode. But yeah, yeah I can. It, it is not entirely intuitive. You know, yeah. There's a comic series I was reading recently that the layout was just a little bit different than what I was expecting. And it's been mm. taking me a while to start, you know, internalizing, oh, this is a full page spread when Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't have thought of that before. Because yeah, there is, you know, there is variable grammar in comics and not everything's universal. And um and and obviously they change over time as well. So if you're reading an older comic versus a newer comic, like yes. I remember going back and you know, reading some rereads and some comics from when I was a kid, I was like, there's so many panels. They're so small. <laughs> Whereas like you read a Marvel comic now, it's like 
one panel, you know, maybe. Yeah. Um, and uh, like Big I read a lot splash of pages. Exactly. Yeah. I read a lot of 2000 AD growing up and, um, and yeah, just a lot of text as well. A massive, you know, Alan Moore loved a speech bubble like that went on for about oh, five God. pages. <laughs> yeah. I, I reread Watchmen every couple of years and mm. it's, it's always an interesting experience going from like something that just came out last week to going to that. And yeah, yeah. all of a sudden, you know, here's some psychiatrist journals to go through. Yeah. Right in the middle of the comic, <laughs> you know? Didn't see that coming, yeah. did you? Um, but yes, but with Loki, I am trying to make it easy to read. Um, partly because I, I, I feel like as a writing challenge, that idea of something that feels very simple is actually quite hard. And I quite enjoy the challenge of that. You know, you're kind of trying to make something feel like it's just skipping over the surface of the world, you know, and it isn't in any way effortful when obviously it is the writing process requires a lot of effort. But, um, but what I'm going for is something that feels like no effort, you know, for the reader. You have another book coming out that you're working on now. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there anything else that you're currently working on that you'd like to share? Uh, I just published a short story, actually, which I'm obviously not working on now because it's out there, but um, it's in a horror collection for teenagers um, called A Taste of Darkness. So it was sort of my, I guess my take on the Buffy genre, the kind of high school vampires, um, but set in the UK. Um, and, and it was really interesting doing something for teenagers rather than middle grade kids yeah. um, because I could swear and it was very good fun. Um, <laughs> but... Um, yeah, so I think I am. I'm very interested. And I'm right, you know, I've got an adult novel in the background, which you know is always time is the enemy. But um, yeah. but I do like writing for all different ages. Um, what appeals about the middle grade age group is it's you're writing for a group of people that will only read it if they really want to. Like I feel there's a lot of adults that force themselves to read things that they should, and I don't ever want to be anyone's chore. Like I always want to be the thing that they want to do more than the other things, you know, and that they would kind of almost. I would love to be someone's guilty pleasure, you know? Um, like, I don't think you should ever feel guilty, but like, that's that would be lovely where you're like, you know, the thing that the kid is reading under their bed with their torch when they're not supposed to, that's that's kind of the goal. Yeah, I'm excited to see a series like this doing so well um, because I was a kid who grew up obsessed with a series um, when mm. I was that age. I was very into Animorphs and never really outgrew that. I mean, you can see working on this podcast like I am, never yeah. <laughs> entirely outgrew uh, that influence. So it's nice to see that kids have something like that to look forward to, oh, you know, going well, to the bookstore. to be to, to animals. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And that sounds like a really neat horror um, you know, collection too. Um, yeah, because it's part, it's, you know, it's like 13 stories by 13 writers. So it's A, fun to have a go at writing the story with a kind of, I guess not having to invest in writing an entire novel, but also getting to read everyone else's interpretation of it. And um, I was a fairly loose brief for just like write some horror for teenagers, but um, but everyone's gone in very different directions, which I enjoy. Like some of them are much more kind of gothic horror, some of them are more contemporary, some are more like folk tale-ish. Um, so yeah, I recommend it. A Taste of Darkness. I'll definitely be picking that up. I pulled it up right here, and the cover's gorgeous too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where can people find you online if they want to you know, follow um, the adventures of Loki and yourself? I'm still on Twitter, <laughs> uh, just at Louis Stoll or X or whatever, you know, you know what it's called. Um, and Blue Sky. Formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> yes, exactly. Blue Sky. Um, and also my website, 
www.louisstoll.com for you know if you want to find a place with all my books on and pictures yeah, of my dog. I have to recommend it just because you were just saying because there's some wonderful pictures of your dog on there that <laughs> I really think everybody needs to see. And like weird objects that I collect as well. Yeah. But thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to chat with you. Oh, thank you. Always happy to spread the good word of Loki. The Loki Bad Gods Guide series is published by Walker Books, and it's available wherever books are found, both on your high street and online. And don't forget, children's books aren't just for children, so give one a try. I'll be back soon with the next episode of the Folklore Podcast. In the meantime... If you have an idea, suggestions or comments for what you would like from Season 9, please don't be backward in contacting us. Email thefolklorepodcast at gmail.com and give us your thoughts. We make this show for you, and it should be what you want it to be. You can listen to our weekly Book at Bedtime storytelling podcast, Stories from the Hearth, wherever you find podcasts and on our website. This show is set apart from others by the fact that it's narrated by you, our listeners. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do. If you want to be a part of it, email folklorepodreaders at gmail.com and let's set something up. We've been working for nearly 10 years now to keep bringing you free folklore content, and we don't intend to change the way that we do it too much, unless we really have to. You can help us by joining our community on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. Support tiers begin at just a pound a month. You probably lose more than that each month through a hole in your pocket or down the back of the sofa. It isn't much, but if lots of you do it, it makes a big difference to us. And we thank you with extra exclusive content on Patreon. Thanks for listening. I'll see you back here soon.